Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of Conscious Design. I'm your host, Ian Peterman, and I have with me today Dr. Benjamin Lakin, Head of Innovation at Servest, a company focused on environmental data. Welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me in. Yeah, so tell me a little bit about kind of your path and how you've gotten here in, in getting to data science and, and the environment and, and everything that you're doing now. I work in quite a few different areas to get here. So share a little bit about your, your journey on how you got here. Well, well, it's certainly been a, a long journey, but I mean, I was always focused on sustainability, climate change, um, biodiversity, these, these large questions that are, are sort of classed as these existential risks to, to our place on the planet and our continued survival. Um, and I always wanted to work in this field. Obviously, I, I grew up in, uh, in the 90s and um, early 2000s, and, and climate change was very much on the agenda uh, throughout my education. And I just always felt that was something I, I would be working on and I deeply wanted to work on. So um, I studied uh, essentially physical physical sciences, so um, physical geography, really, but it was earth sciences and earth systems. Um, I studied uh, up to an undergrad level and then then uh, went out to to work in uh, the implementation of the Kyoto Protocol in, in terms of like carbon trading as, as a carbon analyst for one of the big banks. I quickly felt like that despite the marketing, that wasn't really going to live up to the hype of making a significant difference. So I thought again and, and went back and did a PhD uh, again in, in physical geography, in particular climate change. Uh, and then I spent about eight years in, in fundamental research in the public sector across a PhD and a number of postdocs traveling around the world, working on projects around uh, clouds, aerosols, remote sensing, the impact of climate change on, on different types of ecosystems. Um, I, I published a lot over that time and had had a lot of uh, high points in my career where I got to work with groups like the IPCC and um, was a contributing author in, in the fifth assessment report. Uh, and I, even though I was having having good success and, and getting traction in my in my very narrow field, I felt like it still wasn't really doing enough. Having more precision in our understanding of, of the impacts of climate change isn't very helpful right now. We, we, we're well past the point where we need to take action and we need that action to be at scale. Uh, so I became quite frustrated at my ability to kind of affect change from that position of science. Um, so I, I gradually kind of moved into, over the course of my research career, I moved into the um, software engineering, um, particularly with respect to how science gets done, like how do we actually, how are we confident in our results? How can we reproduce our, our results and be sure that we really know what we know. Uh, and that led me into um, more the technology side uh, and engineering side. So I effectively transitioned from academia into research software engineering, uh, and then from there into ESG-related tech consulting. So I worked for uh, quite a few years um, in essentially data science or applied science, uh, working at this intersectional point between technology, product, uh, and domain science um, at, at the core of, of quite significant projects for NGOs, uh, private business and, and governments, um, projects like Global Forest Watch, uh, Half Earth, 
um, Climate Watch, uh, Resource Watch, Trace, Aqueduct, these, these kind of large scale projects for monitoring resources on demand that very much fall into the, under the umbrella of ESG. Um, and that, that really helped them develop a lot of skills, uh, beyond just purely the scientific into, into how is this being applied across, uh, the entire, uh, well, global marketplace, everything from the sustainability side to, um, impact and, and, um, the economics of, uh, um, but also very much uh, product focused. So how, how can you ensure that you design a system that people can actually use that condenses down complex data sets into action, actionable insights in right. near real time at scale? Always, always a challenge. Yeah. And, and from there, it was a, a, a short step towards Sylvest where I'm, uh, I'm head of innovation. So I'm, I'm uh, essentially sitting formally at this intersectional point now between science, technology, and product, uh, and where we serve essentially a zero to one function in the company, the the, the group that I'm leading. So we, we build out new key competencies and integrate them into into our products. Uh, and all of these products are around um, global scale, sustainability, understanding both adaptation and mitigation, with a particular focus on the physical uh, physical risks of climate change down to an asset scale. So we're, we're really trying to give everyone the tools to understand how is climate change going to affect you down to your single site level uh, and how can you plan, make decisions that take climate risk into account. Right. And that's, that's a long journey <laughs> as you've yeah. had to get here. But it's how, I it think sounds about like 15 it, years. But it sounds like it's a really good path in order to get to sitting in this intersection. You know, you had to have the experience of working in the in the raw data side and understanding what that is. And uh, it's great to see that you guys are, are tackling the challenge of how do you take because we've had raw data, right? We've had all kinds of scientific data for decades and decades. Um, mm -hmm about the environment about all kinds of stuff and you know it's been sitting there right <laughs> the average person um doesn't even look at it because it's it's so it's not, it's not decision useful no, right. exactly it's, it's, you can't you can't look at it even and even guess you know it's it's no, like a third grader right. looking at calculus and then asking asking them to yeah. solve it uh it's yeah. just not it doesn't connect to that usable level so yeah. And you mentioned down to the asset level, right? Down down mm -hmm. to a plot of land, you know, mm -hmm. and the impacts of that. And so what kind of what it how did you how did you guys arrive at being able to what that kind of level of detail? How does that you know, when you look at your impacts and, and you said like physical damage, like being able to to see what that actual damage is this more predictive? Like are you are you looking and modeling it out and saying, here's you know, over the next five years, or is it more focused on you know how how are you looking right. at that? So yeah, so so you're completely right in, in your diagnosis that in fact we've had these data for a long time in crude course forms. Uh, but they've been siloed across different domains, so uh, domains of remote sensing of weather forecasting, of climate modeling, seasonal predictions, of historical uh, integration of data to create what we call reanalysis projects. We, we've had access to these data, but they've been in 
in spatiotemporal regimes that aren't readily comparable and that they haven't, we haven't been able to integrate and get a view of risk across time and space that's standardized, that's multivariate, that, um, that really gets us down to decision grade, um, level of understanding. Uh, and, and that's been a key problem. Um, the science obviously has been available for policymakers for, for many years since the IPCC has been publishing the first report. Um, but obviously that hasn't really been acted upon very effectively yet. So, so we're, we're inverting this and we're taking it down to asset scale and distributing and democratizing that intelligence so that everyone can act on that. Um, now, uh, the question, sorry, your question about, uh, five year timescales and, how it, how it works down to asset granularity. So it's, it's taken about five years of research to get to this point. Uh, and at our core, um, we have, um, we have what, what we call a, a Bayesian, a proprietary Bayesian signal framework. Uh, and what this really means is that we use a lot of quite advanced statistics to harmonize these data from disparate sources and, and, um, bias correct and downscale it so that we can understand both probabilistically, what are the conditions across all of these sources of truth, harmonized and unified and standardized together, and, and also enhanced spatially to high resolutions uh, and bias corrected so that we can really kind of have a, a, a high enough level of confidence in the data to be able to um, make statements about the probabilistic conditions at any location for any time period of interest. And, and the time periods that we're serving right now, they do range from 1970 out to 2100 across three different future, future scenarios. These are the scenarios that, um, essentially are used to understand how might the future be by groups like the IPCC. These are, um, emission scenario pathways, uh, fundamentally. So what different types of, of, climate forcings um, are we are we going to be experiencing will it be a best case where everyone pulls together and really gets on top of the uh, the mitigation with decarbonizing their assets and puts us on a Paris aligned 1.5 degree world where the the climate risks are there but manageable or are we going to be more on the other extreme of a business as usual world where we just keep emitting uh, as if there isn't really a problem? Uh, keep using all of the, those uh, those uh, fossil fuels, um, and end up with quite uh, a destabilizing degree of climate change that uh, has extreme consequences. Uh, and if anyone wants to understand more about those, I'd recommend the Uninhabitable Earth by uh, David Wallace Wells to get a, a primer on that. Um, but yeah, we really have this this range of, of possible futures and we look across all of those futures and and let our users understand what are the risks to those assets ac across those potential scenarios so they can plan uh, as they see fit for the the type of risk that they're willing to tolerate um and right. we we also integrate a range of different types of views of the future everything from long-range weather forecasts to seasonal forecasts to what we call initialized model runs. So model runs that, that start with the current conditions and then look forward a few years to try and capture the El Nino, La Nina phenomena, as well as the long-running uh, uh, climate models that are used by the IPCC. Uh, so we bring all of that knowledge together. So the, the timescales come out of integrating that information. And, and we really have a range of timescales because the things that our users want to do with that data varies everything from operational planning and monitoring to decisions over credit 
timescales of 36 months to uh, more like merger and acquisition planning or P&L forecasting, whatever, whatever their needs are, um, that, that ends up determining what time horizon they're interested in looking at. So we, we abstract all of that technical and scientific complexity away from them and give it to them in an open network where everyone can see and share the same understanding of risk, which is pretty critical because right now we are in a world where people have access to this information, as you say, it exists in many different forms around the world, but often in, in ways that aren't um, useful for making decisions at a granular scale. Uh, and the people who, who do have access to that data in a way that they can make some decisions are people who can who can pay for it. So they're the... Right. the Let's say it's, it's information asymmetry. Well, actually, government wish they had access to that. Uh, there, there are there are use cases that come out of combining the data in the way that we're doing, which which are particularly interesting for the government, and um, that's going to be a critical use case going forward. Understanding things like stress testing on national infrastructure and and the security implications that come from that. Um, right. we're still, we still have to work towards the world where we have that level of understanding. Um, but, but fundamentally, this understanding needs to be shared. So everyone needs to understand risk in the same way to be able to have a, a conversation on a level playing field. We're taking the game theory out of, of deciding what to do about climate change with respect to adaptation and mitigation. So it, it, it can't be, it can't be, I, I win and you lose. It has to be a win-win. Uh, we, we all lose if, if, too many people are on the losing side of climate change at an infrastructure level. If we just end up with large components of our, the system that our economy depends on uh, collapsing due to stress that they're not prepared to handle or risk that they're not um, resistant to or resilient to, then we all lose. Uh, I mean, and we're seeing a little bit of that uh, at the moment in terms of supply chain issues that are affecting us globally. When you have people in London worrying about getting their PS5 because of chip shortages, it's you know, is is the the starting to see this kind of integrated issue, uh, the issue of having such an integrated interdependent system that has high sensitivity to shocks and stresses that is not currently resilient to, and that that will only right. exacerbate over time. Yeah, I, that that is one thing I would say that uh, 2020 kind of woke up a lot of consumers out of. We are actually the the, the idea that. Um, we aren't a global economy is dead. It, it died a while ago, but people finally clicked in that it is very integrated when you when you have a massive problem in one country on the other side of the planet, you're you are impacted in some in some way. You know, today it's you know, yeah, you can't get your PS5. So that's it's not the worst thing on the world. It's not damaging, but that's indicative of what can happen to the wrong supply chain get get damaged and so what you guys are doing you mentioned and there, there's a lot of data that you're pulling together from a lot of different sources to be able to put it together and mm-hmm. you mentioned you know asset management mm-hmm. and being able to look at you know the risk associated with a certain area and you also mentioned supply chain so are you able to start mapping together basically the supply chain. I, I almost feel like kind of what you're building is a uh, global invent resource inventory system. Like, you know, if you're like a game, you could, you could look at a planet and know all your resources. I feel like that's kind of what you guys are doing is you're, 
you're pulling together and saying, hey, look, we're all using all of these resources. Here's where they're at. Here's here's the ones that might go away. Here's the ones that could can make it. So is, it, is supply chain playing into that in what companies are wanting to build? Build out, be able to to kind of future proof supply chains. Yeah. So so initially, our focus is on understanding built infrastructure. So those are think freestanding permanent um, buildings, uh, basically um, yeah, all types of buildings. Uh, we're also adding to that different um, infrastructure types, like linear infrastructure, roads, rails, pipes, power grids, as as well as looking into the future natural capital assets. So um, everything from sourcing regions to agricultural holdings to green spaces. Um, once we've integrated all those asset types, which uh, we will do over the course of this year, then we'll have a complete view, as you say, uh, almost like a video game of the world. And we'll be able to um, we'll be able to determine things like these advanced stress testing capabilities, network risks, second order risks. Um, yeah, I, I mean, at the moment, our focus is on is on buildings uh, and the right. damage and, and replacement costs associated uh, with climate hazards impacting those buildings. Um, but we we have to build up uh, this archive of, of the world's built infrastructure uh, into this open network so that everyone sees the same thing. Uh, and we fundamentally use the, the characteristics that we're extracting on all of those built assets to drive our platform capabilities like search and discovery and segmentation um, and the ability to group these these different types of assets together into indexes of risk across different sectors, uh, industrial sectors or regions. Um, so, I mean, the simple answer is, is yes, but there's complexity because obviously right. if you want to isolate a specific supply chain, then there may be some extra work uh, needed to be done by the users to go in and identify these are these are my suppliers' assets, or this is mm. um, this is my sourcing area, or this is a critical supply line. But once they once they build that out um, at first in a, a fairly manual way, but then later in a much more automatic way, then they can have this holistic view of risk that they they have both directly and indirectly, uh, and that's really a revolutionary revolutionary capability. There are a lot of um, players right now in the market working on carbon. Uh, carbon is sort of the low-hanging fruit and everyone is very much over-indexed to, to worrying about the carbon footprint and the mitigation side of the problem. But it's really only half of the story. We have to also worry about adaptation. Fundamentally, the amount of emissions that we've already put out uh, collectively, uh, Go Humanity is committed our planet to a degree of warming that is already going to be highly problematic to deal with. Uh, so whether or not we magically solve, um, mitigation, we magically decarbonize our assets, we'll still have to deal with, uh, inherently high levels of, of physical risk. Uh, we need to make sure that our assets and our infrastructure are resilient to those risks. Because it's it's almost an equilibrium problem. We built all of our infrastructure considering climate from say last century that was very stable, very consistent, very predictable. Um, right. But we've shifted our climate from that static baseline into into essentially an, an unstable condition that's that's changing year on year. Um, the, this this 
this shift is is basically causing our infrastructure to be uh, what geographers would geographers would term um, relic landscape. It's it's out of equilibrium with the current environment. It's not fit to tolerate the conditions that it will be exposed to. So this is really the other side of the coin that Sylvest uh, and um, our technology deals with tackling. And it, it's quite unique. There's not many players in that space because of how hard it is to actually tackle this problem. There's something like 90 different carbon players and only three or four different physical risk players. But um, once you once you crack physical risk and unify that view of carbon, it becomes incredibly potent because you're able to then make joint decision making for the first time. You're able to look at your collection of collection of assets and say uh, not just ha uh, drive not just decisions on how you, how you want to uh, invest money to adapt your resources, but also to mitigate carbon. So it's, it's basically joint decision making between adaptation mitigation, which is really what we need uh, in this open, right. transparent, standardized network. So with that, do you see kind of the data that you're pulling together then while obviously there's the carbon data, right? And, and that's kind of, as you said, there's, there's lots of people. There's, I think Elon Musk has a new X prize all about carbon, Microsoft's investment. Like it's very much a, a public buzzword. You can, you can reduce carbon on your shipping by clicking a checkbox <laughs> you order. Like it's very, it's very in front of everybody and kind of, um, you know, if, if it keeps going on its path, right, it will be addressed carbon. But you're pointing out this other portion. And so are you seeing this as something that companies kind of, do you see this as, a, as something that companies are saying, hey, we need this? Or is it just a blind side that there's not really anybody going, we need this because we're aware of it. Everyone's just not, we're just not aware of it. Kind of how, how's that dynamic for you guys in, in, in that, that half of this equation? Yeah, so, so we work with some of the biggest companies in the world and um, no matter their market cap, they're all really in the same position, uh, which is a state of climate intelligence infancy. They, they don't yet know what they don't know uh, because they've never been really keeping records of how conditions have affected their operations. Um, mm -hmm. So one of, the, one of the first things that surprises them is the historic baselining. So when they come into our system, they're able to get this view of how how has how have the climate uh, the properties of the climate system been over the, their uh, their past activity from 1970 to present day, as well as looking out into the future. So this baselining and forward projection really kind of right. set the stage for them having this initial uh, initial realization of, of the of the benefits of climate intelligence. Um, but it, it goes far deeper. Uh, and one of the critical use cases that, that they have to engage with over the near term, uh, 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 from, uh, disclosure and reporting use cases. So there's regulatory pressure for, for companies over certain sizes in certain regions to start to disclose their, their physical risk, their material risk on the assets that make up their, their portfolios. Yeah. And that, that's impacting. A lot of people, I think 21,000 companies will fall under disclosure laws over the next year. Uh, and, wow. Um, That's not yeah. a small number. I was thinking less. Um, <laughs> 21,000 yeah. is a lot of, a lot of big companies too. Yeah. Yeah. And, and almost no one really has an idea of how to do this. They're, they're just starting out. Uh, and it's, it's quite a shock to them to, to grapple with this problem. Um, so one of the, one of the key 
initial products that we're putting out is is a an automatic reporting capability so tcfd aligned automated reporting that will be standardized transparent explainable version controlled citable enable the users to download the components or everything's been produced with teams of uh, data scientists uh, visual designers um, engineers who who are basically calibrating all of these technical analyses to be understandable and, and extractable elements that they can put into their own market facing reports or just simply publish via our system and have their have them live online being these transparent um, disclosure reports and with this data right they're they're seeing this is there is it kind of an aha moment at all of like oh we figured out why we're not doing it like is it is there some tie-in to business where you're able to correlate oh look we've we've looked at it, we've now figured out based on the data you're able to pull together we should have been doing better like our our assets we have higher risk we've we've actually had losses are you able to start tying that into a direct you know financial model to say yeah look at look at the impact that the last 1970 has been well, 52 years right 52 years this is what's happened over that course and are, are you starting to be able to to pull that together to show show companies like that exactly what that impact actually starts to cost in dollars uh so you is that's exactly the right question to ask um the first product we've announced is our scan which is the enterprise facing product that i was just explaining that will let you get this baseline of risk the future projections share it internally and externally and create your automated reporting uh what you're just explaining is is uh, the next logical step, but um, we have not yet officially announced that product, so I, I I don't think I can go into detail about it. But let me just say that you're you're on the money in terms of your your suspicions, and it's it's going to be a critical piece in in solving climate change. As capital markets are are going to be the main levers for driving adaptation and mitigation at scale across the global marketplace. We we absolutely need their buy-in. We need to reprice transactions on, on credit and insurance decisions. And, and we need that as fast as possible because this is really a problem that we can't afford to delay anymore. We, we've spent 40 years of delay that we really should not have had. Um, the, the science has been clear for a very long time and right. well, we have not acted. This is, I feel like this is the answer. I was, I was talking to someone else about, um, doing a true cost comparison between like solar and coal power and they they brought up the basically we we're we're in a a carbon subsidized market right we we look at the cost of fuel but we don't actually look at the real cost of of using a gallon of gas whereas you know building a solar panel we there's nothing to Nobody's nobody's hiding anything. There's no uh, right. There's, well, there's less to it, but but we're also still not looking at the carbon impact of that. And so we yes. just had this conversation over if you actually were to put real cost to real cost, mm. including these impacts. Right. Now all the of a externalities. Sudden, now all of a sudden you go well. Of course, this option is cheaper if you actually look at the cost. So I think that that kind of true 
like you said, an unbiased, so removing any biases and actually neutralizing that data will allow people to actually do an apple to apple instead of, you know, I think we're doing a zebra to apple right now. We're, we're like not even the same group of anything when we do a comparison. Um, so that's great. That's great as that's. So you're completely right that the, the risks of climate change are shared. Uh, and, and that externality problem is, has been a significant problem in really understanding the true cost of climate change. Uh, and that's exactly what Sylvester is going to enable people to do to price in those externalities into their, into their operational planning, their PL forecasting, their, their long-term thinking for the first time. That's great. That'll be, and it sounds extremely useful. If you guys ever want to dive down all the way to a per part level, I'm sure that would be an interesting comparison to do. Dive into supply chains uh, yeah. and true, true, true carbon and true impacts. Like that, really, that's what you're what you're doing is is you're you're measuring true impact of what a company is doing on, on a you know detailed but still larger scale right you're you aren't measuring yeah, each screw but, no, <laughs> but you're no, no, saying I, this is what you're doing as as a, a company as a whole this is the impact that's it that's happening yeah exactly initially it's an understanding of damage and replacement costs and and um, uh, disruption to business operations uh with with respect to the physical built environment uh, um but as you say there's a lot of pathways uh, that, uh, there, uh, to develop this technology along, uh, and there's a lot more to do past that initial phase of, of capabilities. Uh, and we will be keeping a close eye on developing those as, as our uh, as our um, as our company grows. Should we say? Right. Yes. Uh, well, I'm sure those are all resource intensive, so <laughs> no one's going to expect you to pop them all out in the next year that would that would be crazy to do um, yeah well, there's also there's also a um a learning journey that users have to be taken on right because at the moment markets are very unsophisticated they they i mean esg was essentially a failure it didn't really help us reprice anything it, it just right. gave very subjective metrics that could have their main application in greenwashing to be honest and uh what we need to get to is a standardized uh quantitative system that lets us price in externalities into our understanding of transactions uh, and yeah that's exactly where we're taking this so it's say it's going to just blow ESG away and, and become a new standard but people have to people have to get have some time to learn what this thing called climate intelligence is uh, I mean the market's already fairly comfortable with with carbon accounting uh, emissions profiling, target setting for carbon, but they really are infants when it comes to understanding physical risk. Uh, and what we're bringing to them is is this um, is is this complete picture of physical risk with carbon and pricing. So it's it's everything coming together, and it's going to take us a while to to build our products in a way that that take users on this understanding that that uh, close this cognitive gap for them. And we really put a lot of effort into into making sure that the products are designed in a way that that uh, takes out a lot of a lot of the stress for our users and the strain of understanding how to go from um, insight to action. Right, and and when you're so a lot of this data, right, it also is pointing out 
to, to companies and, and even governments. Obviously, they, they would want to be looking at this as well. You know, it starts to point out like, hey, you have, you know, whatever, these bridges are going to fail at this point or this building isn't is going to be too risky. The risk is just going to be too high, which I'm sure at some point an insurance company will go, we're not going to cover you because yeah. it's just it's just too risky. So yes, are you, as many people in California are just discovering. So, oh, so yeah. we have we have. Uh, insurance companies use use single risk models. They do understand this type of risk, but they just don't understand it in a way that is uh, it is um, unbound from the historical distribution. The insurance companies usually look at um, past claims data to try and understand the risk in the region, but that fundamentally doesn't work for climate change because the past is not a reflection of of, of the what's to come. So it's weighted. It's just it's a weighted model on past more than trying to look at what we know is going to happen. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And, and what we, we provide fundamentally are probabilistic signals into the future in terms of how frequent things happen, how intensely they happen, and how long they last across multiple variables of risk. Uh, so that's the exposure component of the, the climate change, um, which acts as a, as a threat multiplier, basically. Right. And, and so... With all this data, you know you're you're kind of you're able being able to you know point into the future a little bit and and, and identify those. Obviously, our you know our construction methods are based on what worked in 1900, so we're I mean we haven't really updated much, um, and some of it's older, right? We, how we build things. I was talking to an architect and and how they design and build buildings just hasn't really it evolves very slowly way far slower than what the environment is changing so is there is there this intersection where there's interest or where this can start to be applied into creating solutions of saying well this is how we build a building now but Certainly. here's how you should build a building in order to make it to 2100 and not have it collapse and right. still be functional. Is, are you are you looking to or already having those conversations of directing this into modeling what we need to build down the road? Yes. How do we how do we change yes, yes. The, the regulations exactly. for you know build construction uh, code? Well, we're not looking at the regulation side of, of construction yeah. code, but but um, we're most definitely looking at, at, at partnerships. Um, Around civic and architectural engineering, and and what you said was was completely was completely hitting the nail on, on the head there. And the the problem is that the buildings are essentially built with this concept of return periods in mind. So um, for a given location, you'd you'd want to understand historically how frequently did events that could cause damage or disruption to the building occur. So for instance, if you're near ocean or river you'd ask what's the one in 50 or one in a hundred year flood levels likely to be from this location and then you just make sure that you've designed your your building to withstand either a 50-year return period or a hundred year return period depending on uh the quality you wish to build to and obviously there's a trade-off there in terms right. of how you're spending your money to build uh, and in fact that trade-off that trade-off has other implications as well, because when, when you look at uh, the developing world, the developing world often prioritizes um, low cost o over hardening 
the infrastructure or having it, having it even be built to withstand uh, what they understood the historical return periods to be. Uh, and that whole thing goes out the window when you consider climate change, because what climate change does is completely mess with that, that understanding of what is a normal return period. Like what kind of depth of flood would you expect once every hundred years? That completely changes under climate change. That's, that's why you'll see people talking about in the weather more extreme events, more frequently, more intense. This is, this is basically the crux of the problem. The extreme events are coming more frequently, more intensely. They're lasting longer. They're coming at different times in different locations. The patterns of weather variability are changing whilst, whilst you have this background of the climate crisis with, with, uh, with, uh, essentially chronic conditions. So for instance, like sea level rising. So the storm surges get higher and higher every year. Um, the, yeah, the rainfall patterns can get more intense, uh, due to climate change, which causes like increased, uh, flash flooding or pluvial flooding. Um, all of these factors combine. Uh, and you need to consider them all together to really get this uh, holistic view. Um, and there's one other component there, which is the asset understanding. You have to really understand what, what is this asset? What, what is it, uh, functionally and materially so that you can know whether or not you need to worry about the changing conditions. The, an easy way to think of that is, is, uh, the analogy of the three little pigs. So in the, in the three little pigs, obviously you've got the, the big bad wolf blowing wind is essentially a, a, a risk of, of, um, wind gust. So the wind, the, the wolf is a wind gust forcing. Uh, he's giving the same forcing to three different types of assets. The, the sticks, the, um, I don't remember the story properly, but something, something about sticks and stones and, and bricks or something, but the assets of three different types and two of those assets are sensitive. To, to that initial wind gust forcing, whereas the third one is, is hardened. It's made of, made of bricks. So the, the wolf can't blow it down, but that's essentially what you're dealing with. You have to understand the material properties of the asset, uh, classify those to really understand like, are these, are these, um, is this exposure risk? Does it matter to this asset or just, or to this chain of infrastructure, this supply chain or this, um, infrastructural network that we rely on for transport, um, or whatever it may be. Right. And that, that's a lot of classification. So yeah, <laughs> that's, a, that's a lot. Of, is there, and is, is there a manual part to this where, you know, you basically you're working with companies and they're, you know, they're going out and looking, having to look at their building to see how it is. Like how, like, are you, are you doing that kind of detailed work? And is that more so, manual? Or, I mean, is that, cause I yeah. feel like that's not, there's not really a good, construction database of the world that, that exists. You're, you're completely I mean, right. This is, there is a, a database. <laughs> there isn't a database that we can just go to and just extract and have all the answers. You're completely right. So building this up is, is part of our, our proprietary IP. We, we enable open access to the network so you can come in, select an asset and then understand the risk, uh, the exposure risk and the impact of that asset. But, um, the process that we have of actually populating that asset data, of labeling it so that we can characterize it and segment and do all of the the, uh, the clever stuff that we need to do on the back end, um, that's very much uh, that's very much where the secret source of, of the company is. Like we we basically have two strands: we have characterizing the world's assets, and we have characterizing the exposure risk across time and space. Uh, so the asset workstream is takes significant investment. Uh, building out that data set is it, it will be 
uh, a unique one of a kind data set. Um, when we're done at the moment, it's, it's, we've got good coverage across Europe and America and we're, we're building out, um, uh, as, as we go. Right. Well, this is amazing. There's a lot of, you guys are being able to produce a lot of useful, useful data with this, which is great. It's been decades. <laughs> now we're finally, finally somebody decided to make, make it usable, which I, I think is. Well, it's taken, did. it's taken exponential technology development to get to this point, right? So as you said that we've had some of these data for a while, but we, right. we really haven't been able to leverage the, the mega scale computing. Uh, we haven't been able to leverage the, the high fidelity location data. Uh, and we haven't had the, the ML, the AI, the computer vision uh that we've needed to get to this point um and it's it's really only become possible over the last few years of research so we spent about five years of deep r d uh, particularly around developing our own yeah. signal processing framework and the workflows around assets uh and it, it it's really only now just becoming possible to achieve this uh and we will That's be amazing. <laughs> it's an exciting time i mean uh, from as someone as a climate scientist and someone who cares deeply about what happens uh, to the to humanity as the century unfolds, I wish we would have had this sooner. Uh, but it, it's simply oh, the the time is now uh, for for this technology to rise and for for this uh, this category to be built. Yeah, it, this uh, environmental intelligence—that's a great great way to put it. We need more of it. <laughs> we exactly. It, we, we need it in our businesses in order to make decisions. Like it's well, the category that we're building is, is specifically climate intelligence, but it's it's under the umbrella of climate tech. Um, but it's it's a it's a brand new category that effectively hasn't existed before in, in the way we're bringing it to market. That's awesome. Well, I really appreciate you taking time to talk about what you guys are doing, and uh, I think you've done you've done a great job of explaining what <laughs> what you guys do and. And it's amazing to hear hear it just that you're you're able to to even do this, right? It's, it's an it's an accomplishment just to be able to say we can make the data useful, <laughs> and and you're doing it. Uh, so it's really quick. If anybody wants to get a hold of you guys and start working with you, what's what's the best way to do that? So uh, if you want to fire any comments or questions at me, I'm, I'm on Twitter at Ben Lakin. Um, I'm also fairly discoverable from uh, internet searches. I, uh, you can find me on LinkedIn as well. Um, Perfect. We'll make yeah. sure those are in the description, so that'll be easy. Thank you. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for, for being on. I appreciate it. It's been great. My pleasure.